Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host, teacher and socialist Andy Lipson and community organizer and socialist Kenny Cepeda. We are online at what-s-left.webnode.com. Uh, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on notifications and share your favorite episode wherever you found this episode. Uh, thank you. A quick shout out to for, for folks that are receiving or listening in or watching this. We are sharing our, well, we're asking folks to be in contact with us through our web node, um, blog, or through any of the medium platforms that you have been on with us. Andy, do you want to say why? Yeah, just um, if, if you've experienced adverse effects from taking the COVID-19 vaccine and are open to talking about it in a future episode on what's left, let us know. On with our discussion. Um, so we've invited our frequent guest, John Kleisick. <laughs> Welcome, John. It's uh, it, John Kleisick um, is the author of School World Order, the Technocratic Globalized Globalization of Corporatized Education uh, by Trend Day Books. And he is a contributor to New Politics, the Center for Research on Globalization, Up Ed News, The Interpret Report, and The Dissident Voice. Welcome back. And, and now you're on Unlimited Hangout. Oh, that's right. That's right. I am. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Maybe she update that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's important because that's Whitney Webb. Yeah, that's. I've, I've never had so many uh, responses to an article in my entire life. <laughs> so, you know, usually I write them. Yeah, maybe a couple of people. So, yeah, no, no it's big time. I'm, I'm very happy about that. Very honored to uh, publish with her or write for her. And uh, yeah, hopefully more to come. Yep. So we'll be discussing today's topic, which is a new world order. And this is a conversation we've been meaning to have with you, um, John. Uh, Andy, maybe you want to uh, expand on why we thought this topic would be important for us today. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, it's, this is a kind of a continuation of a theme we've been carrying on what's left about the right and the left. If working together when we share a common enemy um, and that's certainly the case right now and and uh, there is a there's a left opposition a Marxist opposition to the COVID repression that's going on but in all actuality the the Marxists have not been good on this question many of the people who have been good on the question frankly come more from the right and have a different framework for understanding what's happening um, they certainly think there's you know, a, a small group doing something, just like Marxists would talk about, like the capitalist class. We, we call them a smaller group. Um, but it's, we, I didn't really know how to talk about it, but Jake is a person who I feel like knows some of the viewpoints that, that, where that comes from. Um, when we just kind of called it the new world order kind of framework. Um, and I really wanted a chance for Jake to talk about that in front of us, in front of Eduardo and Kenny. and. We could ask him some questions just to understand the, the theory better. And I feel like if we can understand the theory coming from another side, then we can actually really engage uh, in common struggle and be honest with each other about where we agree and where we disagree. Um, but we can't do that if we don't really know what each other believes. So the goal here, and I really appreciate Jake, and we've, he and I have had long conversations about a lot of different things. Um, I really appreciate him taking the time to do this. Um, I'm sure there's things he's going to say that don't cover things that other people believe about it, but this is our starting point today. 
Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And I think it's an important conversation to have uh, just to not to necessarily uh, uh, make any specific claims or points about anything. Like I'll cover a lot of stuff, but uh, I mean, you can at any, any point chime in. I, I can tell you what, what I think about it, but really I'm just going to cover like different angles that uh, are different pillars of what people would consider the, the new world order. Um, and I think it's important to have this dialogue uh, because everything is very polarized and particularly polarized between people that have way more in common uh, than, than they should be fighting about. So um, I hope, hope, you know, being more than just, uh, you know, walking through what, what does the tapestry of this new world order look like? I'm hoping we can like model uh, conversations that other people can engage in uh, on their own shows or in their own, uh, their own, their own everyday life. So. <clears throat> yeah, I actually wanted to start with a question for Kenny and Eduardo that I didn't warn you about. And if you wouldn't mind, you guys say what you think new, like New World Order means to you when you hear that. Yeah, I mean, okay, can you? I I think for me, <laughs> what comes up for me is what I had. Years back, I was I was living in the UK, and I remember, I my friend, his name, and maybe he'll see this. Uh, my friend Duncan, who lives in the Forest of Dean, uh, he he talked about once how there is this idea of governments coming together to form maybe a totalitarian government together and this notion of independent states and wouldn't exist because eventually they would just merge into several bigger states and then they'll eventually they'll have this 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 new world order where this totalitarian state would then be dominant and wouldn't necessarily have what we have today and there are hints of that as he was saying if we look back at how even from if we want to go way back from tribal communities suddenly becoming merged into more established societies and then colonization happening and then slowly becoming uh, more um, divided states and then slowly becoming governments that even though they may be considered different governments, they're still somehow uh, overreach or, or, or governance from one government onto the other, such as Latin America being used as the backyard for the USA. And that's not necessarily, the, the Latin America hasn't always been a threat, except for the very smaller countries that have tried to, like Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, uh, and at one time, some other countries like Argentina, right? And that's where they put other people like Pinochet, right? And, 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 and but it's mostly been seen as uh, the backyard of the USA, whereas other countries, that are more emerging like China and Russia and the USA, these are very stronger countries that are fighting to compete this, to, to, to comp take over of the entirety of a globalized uh, government. I think that that's my understanding, that's what I was introduced to <laughs> and the economics of that would be changed. As, and, and we have seen sort of um, one currency like in Europe, right? Where they had um, merged into merge into one currency, uh, uh, the euro, right? And, 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 and the USA, 
Stellar seems to be the most accepted currency globally. And slowly that's becoming more and more, it's the economics, it's society, it's government and overtaking. That's why uh, the Middle East is important as well, right? With who they're going to side with or these allyships everywhere around the world are important. I think that's my introduction to this. Well, for me, I'd be lying if I told you that I knew much about this. I uh, honestly more came into um, contact with this even um, title, right? The New World Order more recently. Um, it does evoke you know, a framework of understanding uh, the different aspects of society that um, govern our lives. Um, and so I, I am curious more than anything to learn uh, about how these things might uh, fit into how I understand the world through my framework, which is a socialist Marxist framework. Um, and so, yeah, my suspicion is that there are things there that, you know, that are uh, similar parallels. Um, and I, I also think that my notion of the new world order framework is it, associated more with the right than the left. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I really don't know much more than that. Um, in, in I do also vaguely understand that this is kind of a fringe, quote unquote, like idea. Um, and uh, that doesn't really get a lot of play. Um, but it, it does attempt to answer big questions, right? Of how things are connected. Um, and so I'm curious to be here. How much did you know about it, Andy? Or did you have you always been? How long have you known about this theory? I mean, I, I've heard New World Order for at least been thinking about it or heard it for the last twenty years when I when I got into politics. Um, and um, yeah, I think I think the way y'all described it is pretty much the same way I looked at it. And and now I'm just curious to to really start to understand it more deeply. As a, as a framework for understanding how the world is organized and where the world is headed. And if I may, in John, how how did you, or did you get, or how how long have you been looking into this? Um, so I probably heard the term tossed around uh, when I was in high school uh, with some of the people I hung out with. Um, but it was it didn't have a political bone in my body at the time. Um, you know, it was interesting stuff. Um, but when I guess when I really started to research it would have been um, in in college. So uh, I guess about fifteen ish years ago, something like that. And uh, the 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 main way that I came into it was actually through uh, learning about eugenics through some of these conspiracy theory websites. I had some friends that are sharing me stuff, and I'm at the college at the time, and I'm I'm getting close to my senior year <clears throat> in college, and um, uh, there was a. It was actually an Alex Jones documentary. It was in, uh, it was called Endgame. My friend sent me, and it was, you know, he talked. It was this global eugenics plan in there. And I'm like, come on! I, I never even heard the word eugenics, and um, so just that alone was was crazy. Because especially because you know, in college, you get a lot of social justice, racial justice, equity type rhetoric, 
And I'm like, how did nobody talk about this if this is real? Like, this is the absolutely most racist thing I've ever heard of in my life. You know, Hitler's race hygiene. Uh, and then, you know, basically in that movie, uh, he talked about how, you know, the United States basically actually started it and funded it, Rockefeller Foundation, all that. And, you know, I was like, well, if this is true, then I'm going to, then I'll be able to find it in the library. And I found all those old eugenics documents there. Um, and so that was, and that was, you know, it was, that was kind of the first kind of a rabbit hole. Um, but it was also what struck me was, well, how did I not? How did, how did I get all the way through college and not never heard of something that's a, like a historical fact? Like, and it just kind of, I just kept digging from there and, and we'll, we'll go down some of those other paths as we talk about this. And one question I, I was hoping to start off with was maybe the who of, who would you describe as the set of people who kind of would describe to some of these ideas? We kind of put them over to the right. I, how would you describe the character politically characterize the people who kind of go by this new world order kind of idea. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so you're right. I mean, like, especially as of now, right. In the current, uh, parlance, um, yeah, typically if you talk that, if you use that phrase, people are going to think right wing or alt right or something like that. But you know, my, my publisher, uh, he's an, he's an old hippie, right. Uh, cannabis enthusiast, right. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't do the left right thing. You know what I mean? Like, I guess, you know, people would say I, I, I do have a libertarian streak and I guess I do. And, um, but he's kind of the same way, but if I, but I would, you know, if you talk to him, you know, and he wasn't talking new world order stuff, he'd probably think left of center. Right. Um, and so, so I guess what I'm trying to say is before I go down the groups that are currently associated with it, like, you know, especially during the 60s and 70s, you know, that this concept is way older than that. And, you know, that was a that was there was left wing people that talked about it. You know, when people talked about Big Brother, they talked about New World Order. And um, but today, um, I would say, I guess you could probably break it down. Like people will come into it, approaching it from two main blocks. I would say like one is economic or political economic. And then the other one has a religious streak to it sometimes. And so you have a kind of a, a range on both of those blocks. So in the economic sector, I guess you have um, libertarian types all the way to like your anarcho-capitalists, right? Your ANCAPs. Um, and then you have like traditional conservatives, like like constitutionalists, the paleo-conservatives is a term they use, um, or classical liberal, like to the, you know, in, refer, in connection to Thomas Jefferson, um, which is not libertarian or, or anarcho-capitalist, right? They emphasize more of uh, getting back to the Constitution and, and upholding the Constitution. Um, so you got those, those, those are three economic perspectives. Uh, then you have, from a religious perspective, it tends to be uh, a lot of people that are uh, either Christian in orientation or um, what I would call new age, and that's kind of a vague term, but, you know, like um, alternative forms of spirituality, uh, usually more esoteric, maybe getting back to indigenous forms of spirituality. Um, so those would be the different groups. Um, 
and you know, then then there's uh, and I guess I guess what straddles both sides of that would be there's a lot of people that that will emphasize like this this Zionist block or the Vatican block or and, and I guess I could just mention now right each one of these groups uh, it tends to if you, if you want to overgeneralize tends to like focus on one element of this new world order, whether it be right, the Vatican or the Zionists or the globalists or, you know, the, the, the occult or, or whatever. Um, but um, I think that's a pretty good overview of the different blocks. Like if, if there's, if I missed anything that could be subcategorized, we'll probably touch on it. But those, those, that would be a range, but I would also say that, you know, there's, there's people like me that, you know, I don't subscribe to any of those. I'm aware of them. I'm aware of that, you know, how they have different perspectives. Um, but, 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 you know, if you, if you go to, let's say it this way, if you go on new world order media and you kind of look at it stylistically, like the themes of the articles and the rhetoric used, they will, you know what I mean? You could, you could kind of shade them into more, one or more of those categories. Well, maybe, maybe go ahead and start from yeah. under what you heard us say about New World Order and start from there. Yeah, so, so you got a good overview there. I, I, um, this is this little brain map I made to help me organize my thoughts here. And so you basically mentioned uh, two of the three main, main nodes over here, which are like the structure of the New World Order. So that would be a world economy, a one world government, and a one world religion so right uh centralized global control of right all your trade all your finance um all of your uh, governance and then basically control of thought right control of the mind i mean it could be spiritual but you know ultimately it's con it's control of your ethical stance your moral your moral stance and your psychological stance is another way to conceive of it if you don't come at come at it from a religious or a spiritual perspective so all of this sort of like central control of all those resources, right? Um, and then these three over here, intelligence and black ops, Malthusian eugenics and transhumanism, and then called the secret societies, are just sort of the mechanisms or the methods by which uh, this is accomplished, by which this structure is put in place. So um, as you mentioned, um, you know, you, you kind of conceived of it as this sort of a veneer of uh, national governments and, and separate uh, nation states. But really, there is this superstructure, this overarching uh, global political economic system that kind of controls stuff. And that's, that's pretty accurate because, um, you know, you have, your, you have all those lines on that map that separate the countries. But if you look at um, stuff like, well, um, should I just, I'll just open up global economy here and... Um, you have everything from your global finance, international trade organizations, multinational corporations, roundtable, non-governmental organizations, and tax-exempt foundations. So all of these various institutions uh, operate in ways that are able to cross those lines on the map, and they have uh, strong influence on the domestic policies of all those those nation states, um, and so you know we can we can open some of those up and and look at this. What are some of the the specific institutions under those various categories? But 
but that's kind of how, right? What you're thinking, uh, that's how, that's kind of how it works, right? You've got these, these supranational organizations um, that have uh, a lot of influence on various national policies. Yeah. Well, for me, what's a, what I, I want to know this, this, this is, uh, is it safe for me to say that this is a theory? Or how how would I refer to this as I don't I'm not trying to mischaracterize or I don't. I, th I think theory is fine. I think that's fine. Yeah. Theory framework idea. I mean, you know. this frame. I'll use framework. This it, this. I I was wondering this when you when we talk about this uh, new world order um, framework. How how do you see? governments being able to merge or, or becoming centralized as you just said when there is so much infighting and a lot of differences in the way that the world economy or the world um even colonization should should, should happen or the way it's the, the way that governments are functioning currently there's it seems to be a lot of differences and conflict so I think there's actually two answers to that question which are going to sound like different answers but actually I think work together in a dialectic, okay? So I'm gonna go ahead and open up world government here. And just so, so you can see, um, you can see I have round table NGOs under both, but I'll just give you one example of, a, of, a, of how we basically are already under de facto global government, all right? And you see here, we've got the World Health Organization and the United Nations. I can go into UNESCO and stuff like that later. I just wrote for uh, Unlimited Hangout, uh, long history of how UNESCO has influenced the national educational systems of various uh, Eastern, Western European countries. And so you can check that out on Unlimited Hangout. But like right now, I mean, we're basically like every country, even countries that, you know, don't get along uh, in terms of uh, political economics all the time that, you know, there's some friction there. Um, we're all under World Health Organization directives. We're all doing the vaccine thing. We're all, um, you know, I, I said from the day one when they called the um, when they the the um, emergency powers right or the a state of emergency in the country. Why did we do that? We did it shortly after the World Health Organization announced it. So I mean, that's one example of how right we've got our own thing going here. Right, we got our own elections and all that, but really we're under. The, or, the orders of the World Health Organization, right? Um, so that's one way that sort of uh, there, there is that, that global superstructure inside the nation states. But then the other part is like what you rightly point out is that, well, you can see stuff like this, like the U.S.-China beef, right? And the U.S.-Soviet beef, okay? Um, Orwell, George Orwell, like, I'm pointing like you can see the 1984 back there. Uh, but his whole, his whole idea was that there would be an endless war. You'd have three blocks, three super states. So there was Oceania, and that was uh, basically what Carol Quigley calls the Anglo-American establishment. And that, that's the merger through, the fi through finance of uh, Western Europe and the United States. And you can add Australia and Canada to that. Okay. And then, uh, then you had Eurasia, which is basically the... Russian Soviet bloc, and then you had East Asia, which is basically the Chinese Soviet bloc, and then all the other parts of Africa and Latin America were places where they fought. Okay, and so in his paradigm, it was an endless war 
and they would just switch who was fighting who from one time to another. And when they did it, they would just change. They would change the, the propaganda and erase the history. There's actually a, a, this scene in there. It sounds absurd, but the way things go nowadays, I could actually almost see it happening in real life. But they're in the middle of this. This guy's he's up on a podium during one of these speeches, trying to rile everybody up, and he's like talking about how we're at war with Eurasia. And then somebody comes up and gives him a piece of paper in the middle of his speech. And apparently, they just switch who they're fighting. So in the middle of his speech, he changes it, says, just changed it to East Asia. And everybody freaks out. And they turn around because because when they fight against East Asia, they make an alliance with the other guy. So then, so then they're friends with Eurasia. And so they look at all these posters on the walls of East Asia was their buddies. And they go, East Asia must have sent spies and put these posters up and they start tearing it down. Everybody starts basically rioting and stuff. So it's a long story to say that um, that 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 centralized uh, global governance operates through things like the World Health Organization, United Nations, while at the same time, right, you, you still have these other conflicts and largely it's for the sake of um, Either, either distracting your public or for uh, creating conflicts where you can extract resources from uh, you know, Africa, Latin America, what they call the third world or whatever. Let's stay with world government for a second. I feel like I'm talking about like Alex Trebek at the Jeopardy. Um, but um, Kenny, you want to say, I have a question there, but Kenny, do you have a question as it relates to what we're looking at right here? So, yeah, I mean, when he, so, not every nation has an equal say, right? There are three powers you're mentioning, you know, in this framework. Um, so kind of reminds me of, you know, colonies or colonizers and the satellite states, right? Um, so the smaller uh, players don't really have a say. So there is some sort of still wrestling for positioning or is there collaboration among these three, these three states or three superpowers? That's what I'm curious about. So I'm, so I'm just going to go with with um, Orwell's paradigm. There's li there's literally a part in there where he um, he wonders if the the beefs that they're having is like when they hit, get bombs from one either Eurasia or East Asia. He, he it's a really brief moment. He says, "I wonder if there, it's actually just Oceania bombing itself, just to, and saying that it's the other side." So it's not it's not clear, but it, it appears that like the oligarchs of those blocks are actually um, in cahoots. Right, more more than they're more than they beef, right? Um, if if there's anybody that's not part of that paradigm, it's it's the, you know the so-called third world countries, right? And they just are subject to they're, they're basically a, a, a fighting ground where these other blocks either compete for resources um, or cause these conflicts that make scare their populations into submitting to the military state. Um, and, you know, an example of that kind of, I mean, as you, as you mentioned, I guess to go back to like the actual, you know, talk, talking about uh, historical paradigm here. Um, there's a good, there's a good documentary called uh, Life and Debt, D-E-B-T, Debt. And it's about the World Bank and how the World Bank um, shortly after, you know, when the British said, oh, we're decolonizing and we're going to let go all these colonies, right at that time, the World Bank possibly, like, hey, 
awesome loans to, you know, be independent and build up your infrastructure and stuff like that. And these were these predatory loans, very similar to the stuff that we went through before our, our crash in 2008. But they, you know, they would go out and they would give you these, these big loans and they were short term and, you know, you had to pay it back with a certain amount of time. And, um, you know, if you didn't pay it back, um, came with strings attached, right? And so they'd have to give up stuff like your your uh, your infrastructure, lower the trade barriers. And what I learned from uh, Lois Weiner uh, was that uh, they actually were able to um, put mandates on ed tech at the time and were able to like force uh, a lot of the stuff that's happening to us right now. I mean, what they didn't have the sophisticated technology, but they could make them. That was where they practiced a lot of this, like IBM, Microsoft, and a lot of this ed tech in the uh, in the nineties. Um, but if you look at that documentary, um, it kind of focuses on the example of Jamaica and um, the prime minister. I want to say Michael Mann. I think I'm saying his name right. I always I always want to say Manly, and then I don't know if it's Mann or Manly, but it's one or the other. He was the prime minister. And one of the things he points out is that, um, you know, when the United Nations was formed, this is right after World War II. So decolonization didn't happen yet. So, like, yes, other countries, you know, the so-called third world countries were able to be uh, joined later, but it was not set up for that. And so, like, you know, when they would when it would come time for him to go to the World Bank and say, hey, like try to negotiate these loans in a way that was actually fair to them. Like they didn't have the power and, and the, you know, the voting power was largely tipped, tips the scales in favor of, right, those those Western uh, colonial powers that set up the United Nations. So that's a, that's, that's a long answer to say that, um, you know, that I think I think those those big blocks, you know, your Soviet bloc, your Western capitalist bloc, your, your uh, uh, those those two blocks, I was going to divide Russia and, and Asia, but if you just put the right those two big blocks together, um, all the other countries, right, Africa um, and um, Latin America, like tend to be a lot. A lot of those countries tend to be not uh, don't have the same weight in in how they participate in like the UN and stuff like that. And Jake, I'm going to stay with world government. I have a question here, and so so I think. The analogies that I think Marxists would make is we, we recognize these global bodies, um, but we would the analogy we would probably use for something like the UN is a poker table where the big powers, China, United States, Germany, France, they show up with their big wad of cash. They show up with their loaded dice. They show up, you know, and then the other countries either align themselves with them or they show up on their own put like maybe Brazil shows up at the table and they got barely nothing to show for it, right? And they're all and they're all showing up to 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 see who can collect. You know, let's let's have a friendly game of poker, right? Um, but everyone's got their gun behind their back, right? Particularly the big powers. And some of them have three guns and some of them have one gun. And and they all hope that they can come away, like particularly the big powers come hope they can come away from that table with all the money, right? But if they can't, and if particularly if they if they lose too much money, they're prepared to take their gun out and start shooting, right? But they they would like to avoid that if at all possible, and they kind of think they can avoid it. But Marxists would say they can't avoid it. It's going to eventually break out into global war. World War One was an example of that. World War Two, and World War Three, which is coming. So maybe assess that way of looking at it compared. I think that's a maybe a Marxist model for it. How would you compare your own model to something like that? Because 
we would say that these things are going to end, that the fundamental relationships are competitive nationally um, versus how, how it's put forward in, in New World Order. Hey, yeah, that's actually that's a good that's a good one to uh, to, to uh, talk about here, because um, so from a new world order framework, um, the perspective would be that the world wars uh, were not really just these organic uh, b- breakouts based on you know c- a competition that, that that you know just escalated. They would say that um, global financiers. Uh, and this, in the, in the new world order paradigm, there's there's a, there's a there's an important distinction between financial corporations and and other companies, right? Other forms of industry, um, and that uh, global finance basically fomented both World War One and World War Two in order to do away uh, with old political structures, old paradigms, old uh, uh, um, whether they be uh, religious or spiritual or moral or ethical, but also right the political economic paradigm and to bring about. So after World War One, you have um, uh, the League of Nations, right, and that doesn't doesn't go very far. But then after World War Two, right, uh, and they would say that you know World War Two happened very shortly after World War One because they didn't get right their their global governance body. So um, through this conflict. Uh, Funding both sides of the war, um, that they that they basically fomented a crisis where basically it wouldn't matter who won because whoever won they funded that side so they're going to get the profits. Whoever lost, you're going to go have to pay reparations. And then you had stuff like in Europe, uh, the Dawes Plan and the Marshall Plan, where basically the United States came over and they managed the finances of a lot of those countries and told them what they had to do to rebuild, you know, almost like that world bank model. So, so that's how, that's a, that's how you can actually fund both sides. Like how, how could you do that? That's, that's how you would do it. That's how it could work out in your favor. Um, and then, you know, there's historical examples of that happening. Like, uh, you know, so let's, we'll just do world war two, uh, world war two. You have a union banking corporation, uh, and uh, Prescott Bush was part of that, Order Skull and Bones. So it was Knight Woolley, Order Skull and Bones, and either uh, E. Roland Harriman or Avril. I think it's E. Roland Harriman. It's one of the Harrimans. Uh, all three Skull and Bones, and they funded um, the Nazi regime through Fritz Tyson, who ran, you know, if you've ever been, like, we've still got Tyson elevators at, at one of the colleges where I teach, you know, it's got the Tyson logo and uh, logo on it. Um, T-H-Y-S-S-E-M, I'm pretty sure it's Tyson, that's how, that's how I pronounce it. Um, and through that alliance, um, basically they, they funnel money into, into the Nazi regime. And you had, uh, you know, alliances between Hitler and uh, Ford, Right. And then there's uh, the IG Farben complex, the IG Farben, Monsanto, which uh, the, the the recent Monsanto Bayer merger was actually like it was actually a reunion. They used to be part of a company called Mobe and it was part of the IG Farben cartel. IG Farben was the chemical, car- Nazi chemical cartel. Right? And then in, then in World War One, there's a couple books here. Sutton uh, wrote extensively about it. Also, he's got three volumes on uh Western technology and Soviet economic development, where he, where he shows that oh, that's the other one, Skull and Bones again. 
uh, through Guarantee Trust. They also funded, uh, well, the Guarantee Trust had dealings with the Nazis as well, but there's also a connection here between Guarantee Trust or another bank and one of the first Russian banks called Ruskom Bank. And this was, you, you know, that when the when the Russian Revolution happened, right? Like, like, like Marxists wanted their, uh, the idea with Marx's idea was that it would come out of an, an industrialized nation and Russia really wasn't there yet, right? It, like a lot of places didn't even have roads and stuff. So it was, if, you know, what Sutton, Anthony Sutton wrote the, uh, the order of uh, America's secret establishment. Uh, it's, 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 his, it's his treatise on skull and bones. Um, when he was at the Hoover Institute, he, he was doing research on, Soviet uh, or Western technology and Soviet economic development, and he, and he was like, "This doesn't make sense. Like, why are we? If we're really fighting these people, like, why are we sending them this money? Why are we building their railroads? Like, they wouldn't even have been able to become the formidable adversary for the Cold War had we not funded them." And then I won't go all the way through it, but but um, my friend Charlotte Isserby wrote forward to my book. Her parents were skull and bones. He gave. Sutton, the address books, and what he saw, right, that he had these bankers, he looked at the names, and he already knew these names, and he knew who they funded, and he was like, aha, like, this is, this is, like, old, this, this is, this is getting closer to the real mechanism that has shaped history, so uh, those are a handful of, of examples of how, how, I guess, New World Order people would, would think differently about the world wars, and, uh, you know, the Previous, and they would agree that there's that there's a third one in the plan, but they would they would say that um, that that's going to be orchestrated by you know uh, these these what they call the globalists, you know these these oligarchs at the World Economic Forum, and uh, uh, well, I can show you some of these other NGOs later, um, but you know, and and then they hope to ride the tiger and uh, and, and you know and and uh, profit from it in the end, and hope and hope that they can you know not not burn up in, in the aftermath. So tell us about world economy. All right. So with world economy, um, I guess um, the easiest way to think about it or the, the, the way to ground it in uh, non-conspiratorial sounding stuff will be to look at these international trade organizations and global finance. Now, I got multinational corporations, Doctor. I don't think we need to, to really get into that too much. I mean, I just broke it down into um, big oil, energy, big pharma, big tech, mainstream media, military industrial complex, and then Wall Street. Um, so if we can glow, uh, zoom in, I guess, on an aspect of Wall Street, which would be global finance, um, we already sort of talked a little bit about one way that uh, the world economy works, and that is right through uh, global finance of the World Bank, and how right through this one supranational organization, they, we can basically we they can basically um, influence the the economic policies, the trade policies, the trade barriers of various countries around the globe, uh, and then you have all the different member nations putting their money into it to fund it, right? Um, if you're, as you mentioned, some of those some of those folks that come to that poker table with uh, with the big bag, right? Um, then you have the the International Monetary Fund, and they function very similarly to the World Bank, and actually they're part of the same system. It was set up by uh, John Maynard Keynes, the Bretton Woods system, and again, it's right after uh, World War II. 
Um, then you have the Bank of International Settlements. Um, and this was a bank that uh, was caught laundering money. Uh, I want to say, was it Nazi money during World War II? See, I'm, I'm, hope, I'm, I'm hoping, uh, hoping I'm accurate on it. But they've, they've been, I believe, believe it's in Switzerland. Uh, uh, Switzerland. Um, and yeah, if I'm, if I'm correct, right, they, they're, they've been there, uh, been involved in laundering uh, some of that money. I think, am I right that this is where they wanted to put that fight, those Pfizer, um, that money that they wanted to get from when, when, uh, those contracts where they were, where Pfizer was saying they wanted uh, some of the Latin American countries yeah. to put up money. It was, is that it? I believe so. Yeah, it was a bank. I want to say it was a bank. It was, but this is another example of right how that how that bank operates. I don't know a whole lot more about it other than I remember it, uh, in my in my research on collusion with Nazi Germany that, that it popped up. Um, and then other people might put in here like uh, Rothschild central banks, but this is really I would say more prior to the uh, World War II mainly. Um, I don't know how much influence uh, the Rothschild family still has in the Bank of England and the central banks of, I believe, Italy, France, let's say maybe Germany as well. And then um, through connections to American banks, right? I, when we made our own country over here, uh, there was debates about whether or not we should have a central bank. That's what the War of 1812 became about. Um, then we didn't have one for a minute and then, we, and then it came back and and um, J.P. Morgan had a had a, a banking enterprise in uh, Europe called Morgan Grenfell, and that was uh, associated uh, with with Rothschild banks through, through I want to say through Peabody or another bank. Um, and then that's why in, in Brave New World, Elvis Huxley has a all of his characters have these combination names. He has like. Um, Bernard Marx, that's George Bernard Shaw, and Marx, you got Darwin Bonaparte, I don't need to break that down, and then he's got Morgana Rothschild, and that's J.P. Morgan and, and Rothschild, so that's basically, yeah, you also had other Rothschild-associated bankers like the Warburgs and Jacob Schiff that were uh, started the Federal Reserve System over here. And then the Federal Reserve System itself, as you all noted, like because the dollar is basically the global reserve currency, you could consider that um, another instrument of, of global finance. Um, I, I, didn't, I, didn't put, uh, I didn't put that up here um, as far as um, Federal Reserve, right? And then you also have the Vatican Bank. I don't know a lot about it, but I know it's got a lot of money. I know that. Um, and so um, I can't I can't say more than that. But they but people would put that in the tapestry. They would put that all together. And then should I should I look at another one of these nodes on uh, this? Well, world? just before you do though, I I'm curious if cryptocurrency is a threat to any of these institutions. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, um, I don't know a lot about crypto. I've thought about it now. I thought about ways that it could be. I thought about ways that it could ultimately build build a digital infrastructure for them, right? So um, maybe it's a double edged sword. Um, but I can say one one thing I could definitely say is you know both Trump and Biden recently said they don't like you know they really came out vocally against Bitcoin. So I think maybe a way to uh, 
a way to approach this or to think about it might be to, to look at, is there a way to have a truly decentralized and encrypted blockchain or is that just a pipe dream, right? I think that's the crux of the issue. Like if you could have it be decentralized and you can have it be encrypted, um, I think it could definitely be something that, that would be a problem for them. Um, but, you know, if, if there's a way that it's easily swallowed up into this larger uh, uh, geospatial intelligence surveillance capitalist grid, then, you know, one of the reasons I never started and I never invested in it, you know, back in the day when it was pennies, you know, and I'm listening to all the crazy people on the Internet talking about it. And, I, and I, you know, I'm thinking like, this thing probably will be big. But what, I, what ultimately made me not put any money was like, yeah, am I going to be just building the infrastructure that, you know, what I mean, kind of how we do with the Internet. Yeah. You know, we all carried our phones around. We were just, you know, we're just doing our thing. And the next thing you know. Right, they're, they're kicking you off platforms, they kick you off PayPal, they censor you. So I don't know, but, it, but potentially, I do know. I'll just say one more thing that um, um, a lot of these institutions, um, financial institutions, are looking into their own cryptocurrencies, their own their own digital currencies. Now, again, right, is China that, recently came out with their currency, the digital currency? Who, I think China didn't uh, say. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I wrote about that. Um, in a piece on uh, on the implications of blockchain as a distributed ledger, not necessarily as a as a wallet, because um, you can put more than just money on this stuff, right? It's just a ledger that records smart contracts, and you can put other data on it. But yeah, it was, and, and somehow it was going to be connected to their social credit system too. So, um, yeah, so I mean, that's not, I guess that's not a clear answer, but I, I I think there's a way it could be it could go either way. But you were saying that these institutions are looking into their own digital currencies. Yeah, yeah, I think the the IMF, I think at one point was looking into it. Um, and I remember they were looking into this thing called a bank core, and then they were they were looking at ways to have a global currency. One was called a bank core, B A N C O R. Another one was different. Uh, what they call special drawing rights, and I can't explain the exotic algorithms that it has to do with what country you are, how much your currency is worth, how much do you got in the bank, and then how much you can take out based on that. It's, it was a weird thing. Um, but I but I want to say that at some point that they were thinking about, instead of those two options, using some kind of a digital or, or a cryptocurrency. So can you, is this all you want to say right now about this element? Because I have a question. I want to see if Kenny has a question. Or do you want to say more about the world economy getting off the global finance node. Is there anything you want to add in addition to it before I ask my question? Or Kenny, do you have a question about this? No, it was just a comment on, you were talking about cryptocurrency and um, just it just so happens that El Salvador became the one of the smallest countries in the world, definitely Latin America, became the first country to uh, adopt uh, Bitcoin as legal tender in their, in their economy. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that, you know, they're trying to be modern. Uh, that uh, oligarch, that leader of that country, he's trying to modernize the country. And and so, you know, yeah, it's, it's just coming. It's uh, it's going to be part of our uh, world. Uh, and so I'm just curious as to maybe if you have any comments on that, uh, Jake, uh, uh, you know, as to how that fits into this, um, you know, like a small country taking that initiative to, to you know, modernize their economy, quote unquote. 
So I don't know a lot about, like, can you tell me more about, like, how, uh, so how, here's one litmus test, like, how are they handling the lockdown stuff? Are they, like, worse than us, better than us, like, as far as how strict they are? Like, what would you say? They, I mean, they have a very, they don't have the technology that, you know, we have, uh, and they've definitely um, tried to be strict. I know that for, you know, they, uh, they're more, they clamp down in immigration uh, through, uh pressure and funding from the United States and you know so they definitely have are building a surveillance state uh with Israeli technology and things like that um I'm not so sure as to how they're uh, really implementing the you know the lockdown yet but it is notable for me that you know this uh you know some people are calling this person the the um uh, his name is Naib Bukele the the first modern dictator uh, because uh, he has a lot of super popular support, uh, but uh, he has very futuristic ideas to, for the country. And, he, and, he, and, he, and he's using not just blockchain crypto, he's using Bitcoin specifically. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's not a good sign. <laughs> um, I would say that like for like, to go just back to like, like New World Order paradigm, Yeah. I mean, that's not a good sign because I mean like, you know, I like to, I, I would like for it to be something positive. We can, we've got so few things that we can, you know, that we can leverage in our favor. I was hoping, you know, um, but uh, in the new world order paradigm, uh, a global currency, I, I should say, I'm glad we, you mentioned this because yeah, global currency, a one world currency is part of the paradigm. And this is also where, by the way, a lot of people will come in from a religious uh particularly a, a, like an apocalyptic Christian perspective with the whole Mark of the Beast and the Book of Revelations. I mean, I believe there's other religions that have similar uh, uh, end times or apocalyptic scenarios where right, this is just centralized thing. But that, um, so that's where people would, would also get come into that. But definitely, regardless of the perspective, uh, a one world currency um, is definitely is definitely part of it, and the, and the best way, you know, to, to use that analogy of the mark of the beast, right? It's this thing; it's on your hand or your forehead. You can't buy or sell without it. Um, so, you know, that's it's it's not just that you have a one world currency, but that it's hooked up to this like surveillance grid or this surveillance state where like there's no other there's no way to barter outside of it. There's no way to get around it, right? Um, and so that's so, so those two things go together. So then, right, what would be the if you wanted to do that, it would probably have to be digital, right? It would have, probably have to be digital. So, you know, people, a lot of people will probably think when they see stuff like that, that, you know, yeah, it's that's moving in that direction, I guess. I guess the question I'd like to get to stay on this systemic kind of view is again, make use Marxism as a compare and contrast, right? Like, um, Finance capital is certainly talked about in Marx and in Mark, and in Matt Marx's assessment of capital. It's a it's where capital accumulates so that it actually can be used and it uh, for for productive cap for productive capital to put to put things in motion. But but fundamentally, the the, the system that Marx describes when he's talking about a global economy is one that says an inner an inner interrelationship between productive capital and industrial capital really and and finance capital separate into nations because they compete um, but that the uh, but that what governs it is the fact that they need to profit that you need to profit so they're they're, they're 
the, the, the governing force behind production is not a decision. Rather, it's the need to make profits. So that, so that a car maker says, I don't make cars, I make profits. I don't make another toothpaste maker says, I don't make, I don't make toothpaste, I make profits. That's, that's would be a, a Marxist paradigm for understanding that everyone is really making one thing in terms of the capitalist production model is they're making profits. And that's how it understands production. And it says that that profit making occurs in, a, in an anarchy of the market, right? Like you don't necessarily know if you're going to make the profit, but you're going to, of course, you're going to load the dice and, you know, in state actor ways and other monopolistic ways. But at the end of the day, it's an, an anarchic situation. Does the new world order see a world that is produced on the basis of profit? Does it accept that notion of least capitalism existing like that way? Or do they see new world oil as deforming capitalism and that capitalism itself is kind of is almost like this uh, free system that if new world order wasn't screwing it up, it could work? Um, that's a good question. So I, I think it is sort of like, um, so, so I would say that, especially if, if we're going to, if we're going to keep the, you know, uh, if we're going to look at it from people that are uh, right of center, considered right of center, which is the common parlance. I would say that all those those groups that I that I laid out the different groups. I would say they all have a an amenable an amenable position towards capitalism to a degree, not not entirely. They all they all have critiques of capitalism, right? Even the libertarians who you could think of as like some like you know radical capitalists, you know, is, is one way to think of them, right? Um, would 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 critique things like crony capitalism and corporatism and things like that, um, you know. But but then you have even like you know conserv just like traditional conservatives that would not you know want a, a libertarian economy, but would still say that you know that uh, the real like a real free market, not you know the free trade that's part of these other um, international trade organizations that we'll look at in a minute. Um, that that. That that is, in some level, uh, an essential element of a, of a free society, regardless of what the public's role is in regulating it, or you know, providing public services or redistributing. Like there, that there should be this element of free exchange in between your labor and your production and whoever you choose to to trade with, right? Um, you know, they would look at something like the difference between, like, you know, my dad. My dad was basically. You could call him a capitalist in the sense that he was a carpenter who was his own. He, he did his own. He had his own business, but he was doing business ads, DBA. He wasn't a corporation. He wasn't an S corp. Wasn't a C corp. Wasn't an LLC. You know, and, and he had family members that were like, "You should do that." And he, he like, I'm, you know, you're not going to make money unless you have a, a company and, and you and you out. And he was like, "I like to put build it, man. I like to put it on the wall. I like to see what I created, stuff like that." Um, and so, you know, that would, I guess that's my example of the type of, everybody would at least like on that, in that end of the spectrum would like that some form of capitalism, some element of capitalism that looks like that. The other, the other part of your question is the relationship between finance and industry or manufacturing. Um, and I, I, so from a new world order perspective, not, not everybody would probably use this term, but I'm going to use it because I think it's a good way to distinguish the difference between the profit incentives of like a, a large uh, industrial manufacturing company versus uh, a, a bank or a financial institution, which has 
more than it has profit in, 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 uh, in mind, it has the accumulation or the, the co-optation of assets, meaning like, so those, uh, those companies, however big they might be, a lot of the times are actually in debt to these banks and they're reliant on it. And a lot of times, just like in the example I gave of the World Bank, right, the, 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 uh, the banks are giving out the loans so they can basically take over part of your company and don't have to worry about some of the, you can put a lot of the risk onto the company. And then, you know, if that company goes up, well, they still got it. They can sell it to somebody else that wants to try to run it, you know? Um, and the element there would be, it would be more user, more a system of usury than a system of profit. And a, and a system of usury is one that tries to get something out of nothing. I guess certain degrees of profit, you know, especially if you're particularly, uh, you know, uneven handed in how you, you do business could be could be similar but you know you're uh you're excising a, a ridiculous amount of uh, uh interest which has absolutely no correlation to any any labor output any any contract as far as you know production or labor so um so that's the difference and and, and those 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 financial institutions um right not only do they want to buy up and own up those companies, but in the example of the World Bank, or they want to buy up, you know, like like countries, right? Like you know, your 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 public infrastructure and your private businesses, and so that's that would be the difference, I, I'd say. So okay, so yeah, so um, so let's take a look at um another integral part of this global finance, which would be international trade organizations. So we um. So these are various um, collectives, I guess, where uh, these multinational companies and their uh, the governments where they domestically operate get together to agree upon uh, whether they be tariff regulations or, or other trade agreements internationally right so like what are we going to trade in dollars are we going to uh, you know how much are you going to charge for x or goods x or goods z or goods y right um and so just to kind of give a little overview here not some of these might not fall perfectly into international trade organizations but the goal of, of making the knowledge was to make you know enough categories where it wasn't just endless data points so Certainly, we could say the general agreement on tariff and uh, trade and tariffs is, or GATT uh, is one of these. Uh, NAFTA, I should I should have put the acronyms here. Everybody knows the ac the acronyms better. Yeah. Um, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. That's the OECD. You could probably put that one under global finance as well, um, because. Uh, well, you could, you could probably do that. You know, I, I don't know that. I, like I said, I don't know how to categorize these perfectly. But uh, then you got your WTO, World Trade Organization, and the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. All of these, right? This is your agreements between, um, uh, you know, Western Europe or America and um, you know Asia, basically, more or less. This is basically our our um, agreements with um, Canada and Mexico. Uh, and then your World Trade Organization is basically right, just just global. And I, I put the World Economic Forum in here. Um, that might that might sit under like an NGO or a roundtable as well. Like a think tank is another way to think of it. 
um, because there's not actually like trade agreements that are that are brokered here. But a lot of the ideas about how they want to actually broker these trade deals at NAFTA, at the TPP, right? They they really get together and kind of in their little gentlemen's general gentlewoman's club here, uh, and and think tank those uh, kind of spitball those ideas. Um, I would say the EU, which was first known as the European Common Market, and that comes shortly thereafter uh, World War II connections the Bilderberg Group there, but. Uh, you know, that's basically why you even have one currency that you can use in all the different countries of Europe. So, you know, I guess, you, again, you could put that in an international trade organization. Maybe you can consider it an element of international finance as well. Right. So I, and I'm not being super concise here, but I want to take this moment to point out, right, like some of these institutions kind of operate in a couple different spheres. Right. And so um, but this is a good way to, you know, lay them in different categories. Did you want to comment on how the World Economic Forum is related to the Great Reset very quickly, or is that going up too far off? Well, here, we could just open it up, right? So the World Economic Forum is running the Great Reset. Let's look at the members they have. So I didn't put any specific companies in, but here's uh, the, the multinational corporation category, but here they are. Right? Here's a bunch of your multinational companies. Most of these, if not all of them, are... Um, or U.S. based. This is a really Opechi. And really Opechi was uh, gave a speech here on uh, overpopulation, zero growth stuff, and he's related to, or uh, he co-founded the Club of Rome with Alexander King. Alexander King was part of. Uh, I think he was wanted to say he was the director of science policy or something like that at the OECD. Right, and then then we're back into our international trade organization. So, so, so you can see there's a nice little connection there. Now, going back to the world order, uh, the world economic forum with the Great Reset, I should have put it in here, but I, I, uh, I was too, I spent a long time on this. I was like, I had to walk away at one point, uh, but I could have put a little note here. Maybe I'll do it right now. I'll just make it, and I'll go. Oh, I don't have the keyboard. Sorry, I can't do it. Um, it's over there. Um, the World Health Organization, right? What they're what what World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization are pushing the same narrative, right? And they often, you know, are like we're collaborating and stuff like that. They were also part of a buddy buddy with Johns Hopkins University at Event Two Hundred One. They are also buddy buddy with uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There, so um, so yeah. So I mean, you know, all this all this uh, COVID stuff that we're dealing with, all the lockdown stuff. Right. This is another example of how the policies that were uh, being implemented here domestically is really coming from these global institutions that, as I just illustrated, are all in bed together. They all commingle together. And looks like a majority of um, tech companies. Oh, yeah. I, and I wish, if I would have had time, I would have added all your pharmaceutical companies there, too. If you go on, I think it's their partners page. Just go to go wef.org. Go to the partners page. It's alphabetized. I mean, it's, you know, each alpha, each letter has got a huge section. But you know, if you can think of a big company, it's probably in there. And that's. And I know that Andy. Go ahead. Work. I know Andy doesn't want to go too far in this area, but just I see twenty three and me. Can you just quickly talk about how it's related to? Because I think a lot of people are on this. Um, I mean the ancestry sort of um, trend 
and I see 23 and me. Can you just touch base on it just for our folks that are interested in things that directly affect them? I mean, I know all of these things directly affect people, but this is one of those things that I think is a cultural phenomenon, which I think is related to the bigger um, framework. Yeah, yeah. So let's so let's go. I'm gonna click on the Google. I'm real okay. So I just real quick. So Google, um, I want to say is Google either either funds 23andMe or or owns part of it, or it's a, something like that. There's a financial or a corporate connection between the two. Um, and we'll we'll put a link up or something. Um, so and so 23andMe is one of these companies that's basically looking into your genomics and basically they say they're going to find your ancestors and uh, and your family tree and all that stuff, but. What they also do is um, they don't just look for your ancestry, right? They'll, there's They can do, you send them your DNA, and when there's a little box that you check, and it says something like, uh, can we use it for research, right? And so when you give them that, they'll use it to see, like, oh, they, they put it in this big pool of other sequences to try to correlate which sequences have everything from, like, um, well, one of them was IQ, and when we talk eugenics, I can... Uh, I can explain, I can wrap, I can wrap on that more, um, but you know, like allergies, um, you know, other health conditions, uh, and then actually, um, I don't know if it was specifically twenty one and twenty three and me, but one of them was called Gene Plaza, I believe. That's another company that does similar stuff, and they might partner with twenty three and me. But what, in in my book, it's in the same chapter where I'm looking at all these companies. Um, they, they share that stuff with, they can share that stuff with a criminal justice uh, department. So the Golden State Killer, right, was just, they found out who that guy was based on uh, not his DNA, not even DNA that he was uh, like someone immediately related to him. It was like like five steps removed or something like that. And, you know, then they narrowed it down to like location, age, and they, they figured out who it was. Uh, but the Google influence there is, uh, I imagine, you know, either other than financing, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they they, they uh, handle some of some of the uh, the data analysis as far as how they scan the the correlations between the, the gene sets. All right. Well, that was it. Thank you for that tangent. That while you you noted that under the new world order, there's these six nodes. Um, that the real thing about these nodes is they all interconnect, like elements of them get you to the other parts and you, it forms sort of a web as I understand it. Yeah. And for, I know, I know some people are just going to be listening to this and then, you know, some people, you know, for whatever reason might, might feel not differently able, might not be able to see. Um, but, you know, for those of us that are looking, just to so say, if you are looking, the way that these nodes are supposed to work is if it's from top to bottom, it's either like a chronological relationship or a hierarchical relationship and then if it's like one of those nodes that goes left to right, as in uh, from World Economic Forum to Cardinal Theodore McCarrick or in Google to 23andMe, and, and that, maybe that should be hierarchical. I, have to, I, didn't, I didn't bother to double check the, the, the precision on that. But, um, but this is to say it's a jump. So it's like there's a connection, like either they cooperate or they collaborate um, or, or in some way they, they work together, but it's not like one owns one or one came historically as a precedent or anything like that. Just, just visually so that it might help you think about what you're looking at if you're, if you are looking at this map. Yeah. 
if we can go back to just the very the center or the, the if yeah if, Which one you want to go to next, Kenny? Uh, we're really just to finish this section right here. And just to maybe remind me, uh, Jake, um, so you have on the right world economy, world government, world religion. What is the difference between this section and the one on the other column? So on the left, those, those so on the right, that's basically the, the infrastructure, mm. right? Like the actual institutions, uh, the public faces of uh, the new world order. On the left side, what you have are the methods or the mechanisms, uh, or and, you know, they might call it the hidden hand, the, the non-public face of how they actually carry, carry it out. Now, you know, obviously, you know, if you're at, if, ever, if all these companies are getting together at the World Trade Organization, that's one place where, you know, uh, you get together with your, your little think tank buddies and you talk about stuff and make agreements. But a lot of times, those, some of those conversations, some of those agreements have, have already, they've already had those conversations in other more uh, private, clandestine uh, arenas, right? And, uh, and those would be in some of the, through some of the intelligence agencies and some of the occult or secret societies. Okay. So yeah, I think we should definitely go for world religion just to finish this. Okay, so the best way to understand the world religion component is to understand it in terms of the world economy and the world government. So in order to establish a world economy and a world government, you'd have to get rid of all of the classical world religions because you could set up a one world legal system or a one world government, and also you could set up a one world trade system or one world trade regulations in other words a one world economy but if you have a bunch of classical traditional religions that have different beliefs about what is right and wrong you're necessarily going to have opposition from those religious perspectives right there's going to be people that uh, have different spiritual moral or ethical beliefs about things that uh, are wrong with the one world economic regulations or the one world government legal system. So there's two ways to get rid of those classical world religions. So one is to destroy all of the classical world religions or just get rid of them somehow. The other is to blur them together or blend them together in a way that they are absorbed into the ethics of the world economy and the world government system. Okay, so let's take a look at the world religion block and let's talk about those two different strategies for either getting those classical world religions out of the way or basically blurring them together into this milk toast thing that is basically just absorbed into the ethics of the world government, world religion, or world government and world economy. Okay, so under world religion, I have four nodes. I have monotheistic apocalypticism, I have monotheistic ecumenism, and then I also have atheism and humanism as one node, and then Luciferianism and Satanism as another node. Okay, so uh, the monotheistic apocalypticism is the strategy in which we get all of the classical world religions to fight, in particular the Abrahamic religions, that being Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Okay, and so the idea here is that you get them into a global 
religious war that would either culminate in World War III or be somehow contingent upon World War III or connected to a World War III scenario. And then as a result of that beef, as a result of that war, as a result of that fight, you have the United Nations and other world governance bodies come in and play a referee and say, okay, okay, enough of all these classical traditional religions because all y'all do is fight. And um, so we're, we need to just get rid of those, uh, those religious principles and we need to basically establish like a non-religion that is atheistic or humanistic. And in a sense, the new, the world religion that would, uh, that would replace the, the traditions of the classical world religions would be one of scientism and the, their religious sacrament would basically be technology. And then later on, we can talk about how that relates to transhumanism. Uh, you can kind of see, you can kind of get a sense of how the scenario could play out if you just take a look at the crises in the Middle East, which have been going on um, at least since the establishment of the state of Israel, um, and that being the conflict between the state of Israel and uh, the Islamic world, and then obviously uh, various Christian sects take sides in that, um, sometimes supporting the state of Israel, others sometimes supporting uh, the Islamic state. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of Christians in Palestine, so depending on uh, which denomination uh, people might associate with, you, there's, there's Christians on either side of that turmoil. And obviously, right, recently we've seen that those crises have uh, escalated to a new level. The strategy in which you blur all of the religions together in a way that makes them compatible with or absorbed into the ethics of the world government and the world economy would be something called monotheistic ecumenism. So ecumenism is a movement usually associated with different Christian denominations in which they take a position not that the Bible and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but that basically all religions have some sort of truth that can all be sort of blended together if each of those religions were to put, put aside uh, particular dogmas. Now, a good example of this would be uh, some of the Catholic Church's most recent meetings uh, in which they I believe the Pope went to a ziggurat somewhere in the Mesopotamian world um, and they, they were holding uh, prayer vigils with a bunch of other world religions, uh, all of them basically celebrating an ecumenical faith where they would all pray to uh, their own gods and their own deities uh, through their own uh, faith. Now, the end result of such an ecumenical merger sort of lands in the same place as a, as a humanistic religion, but other people could see it as sort of a new agey thing, um, and that new agey thing could, could have uh, parallels or could dovetail with uh, Luciferian uh, or satanic um, spiritual ideologies. So what I mean by that is if you ask each classical religion to get rid of its traditional dogmas in order to make them all compatible with each other. The only common denominator that can really be found after you strip away the particular traditions and doctrines is either going to be something of like 
a humanism that uses those religious doctrines not as revelations of the metaphysical spiritual truth, but just as archetypal stories that represent the human condition or the psyche. Um, you can kind of think of it almost maybe like a Jungian thing where, where Carl Jung would say something like all of the mythologies of of the classical religions basically just represent narrative ways by which we express psychological elements of the human condition. And so in that way, again, you're, you're making all those world religions amenable to the ethics of the world government and the world economy. Now, another way that you could approach the ecumenical strategy where you blend all of the world religions together, you could also interpret that as creating or evolving a new system of pantheism. And pantheism basically says that God is in everything, like that God is the matter and energy of the universe itself. But the common denominator between both the, the pantheistic approach to ecumenism and also the atheistic or humanistic approach to ecumenism is that human beings become God, either by understanding the secrets of the universe and mastering the secrets of the universe through an esoteric understanding of nature, again, through primarily through science and technology, although there could be other esoteric practices involved in the pantheistic strategy, uh, or in the atheistic humanistic approach, um, although there would be no explicit notion that humans are gods or that humanity has crowned itself as, as, as the god of world uh, by default right there is, since there is no higher metaphysical principle there is no transcendent principle that by default we act like gods because in that in that strategy morality and ethics again is going to be about how we master nature and the human condition through again science and technology right so so Either approach, whether it be to get rid of the world religions or to blur them all together, the idea here is that human beings become their own gods uh, and the oligarchs of the world economy and the world government basically take on the role of a priest class who are the gatekeepers for a new faith or belief in scientism uh, through the sacrament, again, of technology. Now, the Luciferian and Satanic interpretation of that new world government can be understood in terms of the idea that if you look at the book of Genesis, the argument in the Garden of Eden before uh, Adam and Eve eat the apple is that Eve is uh, getting, she's out in the garden and the, the serpent says something like, hey, you should eat this apple, which is the, the uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge. And... Eve says, well, no, God says, if we eat that, we'll die. And the serpent says, which is Lucifer or Satan, he says, no, 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 no. He's just telling you that because he knows that when you eat that fruit, you'll be like him, meaning you'll be your own God. So that is you know, biblically the promise of uh, Satan, uh, Lucifer. And so you could call it atheistic, humanistic, or Luciferian, satanic, and sort of mean pretty much the same thing in the sense that human beings are crowning themselves as God through the power of science and technology or scientism and technology 
as a means of mastering God's creation. My, right? If I may, can I just quickly insert myself here? I was raised a Jehovah's Witness for 18 years of my life, and this is exactly when I heard New World Order, I was thinking that this wouldn't match up because New World Order, as I had said earlier in the in the very beginning of this episode, whereas I New World New World Order, as we're talking about it before I delved into this area here that we're delving into the religious aspect is what I heard from my friend back in 2015 in the UK about world governments trying to create a totalitarian uh, government. But at that time, I remember thinking New World Order sounds very familiar because as a Jehovah's Witness, there is this buy-in to this, this idea that they're expecting World War III or they're expecting something like the North King and the South King, whatever, like this new kingdom, this how do you say potencia? Is the no, potency like um? But the, how do you say this? Like superpower. Superpower. Thank you, guys. Thank you. superpower. This this superpower government to come through to show itself and to and and because there is this like um, Babylon or this this statue figure of different superpowers governments that that are that have shown over the time to like Rome was one of them and over time to have eventually um, fulfill prophecies from the Bible that will show eventually that we're going to enter this phase. That's why COVID and this whole, I'm, I don't know if this, I'm not speaking around how I say this. The pandemic fits perfectly for the Jehovah's Witness um, ideology because it, it shows famine, diseases, all of these things are signs of the end of the times. That's the Jehovah's Witness thought. And so anyhow, I, what you just mentioned here, I didn't delve into this part of your map um, prior to this. And now that as I'm looking at this, I could see how this is um, serves the prophecies of some world religions, such as Jehovah's Witness, which is a branch of Christianity. I'll stop there. Actually, I have one of my really, really good friends is uh, JW. And uh, I, I, we talk theology uh, like every week, you know, and it's, it's fun conversation. <laughs> so I'm, I'm familiar. I get to with that statue you're talking about. That's in the prophecy of Daniel. I, I, won't, I won't go too deep into yes. that. That's probably too, new, too particular for, for our discussion today. But yeah, I know exactly yep. what you're talking about. And, um, okay, so now let me break down some of the particulars of these different nodes and show you some of the different paths or some of the different pillars. Okay, so in the monotheistic apocalypticism, so I use the term apocalypticism here because all of these different Abrahamic religions have an end time scenario in which there will be uh, Armageddon or a, a final uh, conflict that will result in the day of judgment. Now, other religions have end time scenarios as well, and they could also fit into this dialectic. But if we think of the crises in the Middle East as, as a geopolitical scenario where, where we could actually see something of this type of scenario actually breaking out. This is a good way to, um, to capture this scenario. Okay, and so I should also add here that there are some people who believe that this end times World War III religious war scenario will establish a world religion by means of either a Vatican takeover or a Zionist takeover or even a takeover by an Islamic caliphate, meaning one of these religious blocks will come out on top of the world war and then whoever comes out on top, that block will 
establish their brand of a world religion based on their religious precepts. Um, so should I pause there? Well, yeah, I have a question. Then, so at first I was looking at it and being like, okay, people who are opposed to new world new world order would would out of this out of this monotheistic apocalypticism would have said that the Catholic Church and the Vatican is running part of this operation, that they're the, the, the engine behind the fi finance capital and behind the way the, and the global government that's being formed. And, in, and in, that re, in, that, in that understanding, you're opposing the actions of the Vatican. Then you're speaking of another group of people who essentially are saying, no, man, I'm all in. I can't wait till the World War III. So some of those people you're describing are New World Order people who are for the New World Order forming and see it as an expression of, uh, you know, their religion is going to come to pass when the New World Order does its thing and the world is destroyed out of global war. So is that right? Like some people, I'm a little confused there because some of the folks you're talking about, I could see opposing the New World Order formed out of these Zionist, you know, forces coming in or the Catholic Church coming in. And now I'm hearing another set of people who might believe this, who would actually be like, yeah, let's get, let's get there. Now, I believe that all those perspectives basically just feed into this World War III dialectic. And also, I feel that those perspectives are the least plausible because any one of those narrowly defined religious paradigms will be far less compatible with the cosmopolitan, technocratic, transhumanist ethic of the world economy and the world government infrastructure that we have described so far. So what seems most plausible is a scenario in which all of these religions are moved out of the picture or in which they are synthesized or amalgamated into a new ethic that can be plugged into technocracy and transhumanism. And also you can see that within this dialectic of Middle Eastern conflicts between Christian geopolitics Zionist geopolitics and Islamic geopolitics, there are, in fact, demonstrable geopolitical alliances across these three religious paradigms. In particular, you can see that the Zionist agenda of the State of Israel is supported by American evangelical Christians and branches of Christian Zionism, and then both the State of Israel and the United States within their Judeo-Christian alliance, both of those nation states partner with Saudi Arabia, which is an Islamic country. And one thing that all three of those countries have in common, despite the differences in their domestic religious alliances, is the fact that they are all heavily invested in smart cities, which are building the internet of things that will be plugged into the transhumanist biotechnologies in the technocratic world government, world economy. Yeah, you just mentioned, you know, the end goal of the new new world order. Um, so, that, you know, maybe this will be answered later, but I just want to throw this question in there. Um, so is there central planning? You know, is this like a, you know, like you said, a Hegelian situation? And if there is central planning, who's driving this central planning? And um, you know, because we've talked earlier about, you know, these superpowers being in cahoots with each other. Uh, so do they, you know, do they literally sit in a room. You mentioned these other, you know, secret organizations. So I just want to throw this question in there, you know, like whether 
it's central planning or it's just this interplay of actions uh, that lead to a new world order and, and outcome? If there is a central planning, it would be either in your intelligence agencies and or your, your secret societies. And, and one day when we get there, uh, you'll see that they, they pretty much overlap. Okay. Um, now, if we're talking about in terms of like the, from the religious paradigm, what is the what is the central plan? I, in my opinion, I would say it is the it's the Luciferian one. Okay, so now let's look at the strategy of monotheistic ecumenism, where we blur all of these religions together and we strip away their traditional doctrines until all that's left is either some sort of an atheistic, humanistic ethic or a pantheist religion in which both cases right human beings are their own gods either way and that the new religion is basically scientism with the sacrament of technology okay so to show you how the strategy of ecumenism actually again uh, is compatible with the ethics of the world government and the world economy let me just show you uh, a recent vatican conference and you can see that there was representatives of Pfizer okay and also Johns Hopkins University right here we've got representative from Moderna we got Mark Benioff from Salesforce he's Bilderberg group we've got Chelsea Clinton from the Clinton Foundation we're here look at that Deepak Chopra so there's there's an ecumenical alliance with um Eastern religions or, or Eastern philosophical religious traditions. Got a professor of genetics from Harvard Medical School. Okay, and then you can see that we've got a gentleman here from something called One Shared World, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds very one world order to me. Uh, and then over here, we've got a representative from the Food and Drug Administration, US FDA. There's also members of Microsoft's uh, medical officer, VP of healthcare worldwide commercial business uh, branch of Microsoft. And then a gentleman from the World Federation of Public Health Associations. Okay, and then I'll show you one more, which is a gentleman uh, who represents the Islamic branch of ecumenism, and we, he is a chair of British Board of Scholars and Imams, and a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Okay, and, and at this conference, basically, if I can paraphrase, the uh, the Pope said something to the effect of that the the, uh, the Catholic Church should uh, evolve and move forward into an era where um, it would play more of a role like a um, nonprofit foundation or a global social service society. So again, right, you see here, you've got this alliance or this merger of various uh, religious affiliations in combination with nonprofit organizations, academia, uh, global health organizations, pharmaceutical companies, and basically they're all working together toward this new world medical society that is also being pushed by the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, and the World Health Organization. It's just kind of to illustrate how this ecumenism thing uh, actually 
is amenable to or can be absorbed into the ethics of the world government and the world economy. Okay, and so now let me go back to the um, to the map to kind of walk through a couple other uh, approaches or subcategories that fall under this ecumenism. So related to the monotheistic ecumenism, as I mentioned, is the pantheism where right, uh, the matter and energy of the universe is itself God and that humans can become God by mastering uh, the secrets of uh, the universe through science and technology. Now, again, I'm going to show you down here, you'll see Philosophia Perennis, you'll see Astrotheology, and then you'll see New Age Esotericism. So Philosophia Perennis is just this idea, it basically means the perennial philosophy, and it's this idea that there is uh, a fundamental truth in every form of religion, and that we should strip away uh, all of the veneers of the various doctrines, and if you do that, what what is left is the uh, the true religion or the the, the the actual truth that just takes different shapes perennially, right? As over the years, as um, society evolves or as cultures change over time, that the um, the expression of that perennial philosophy uh, takes different forms, which we would see in the different forms of the classical world religions and, and then other less lesser known religions. And, and then you also see here, if I light it up, that there's a connection between Philosophia Perennis and something called Gnosticism. And then that Gnostic node also connects back over to the New Age Esotericism. Okay, so before I explain what Gnosticism is, I want, I'll go ahead and break down uh, what is the New Age esoteric branch and how that feeds into the pantheist model or the ecumenism model. So when I click on New Age esotericism, you'll also see that it is connected again to this other node of astrotheology, so we can get to that in terms of its relationship to uh, the, the New Age movement. Okay, so when we, when we talk about the, the New Age movements, um, the distinction I would make for the New Age is that um, you can see this if you ever go to a New Age bookstore, you can see that they, they have texts uh, on all of these different categories, and a New Ager will, will sort of combine all of them together. So some of the traditions that they, they would uh, connect with would be Gnosticism, um, Egyptology, Astrotheology, and Theosophy. So theosophy, I think we can talk more about theosophy uh, when we look at the occult and secret societies. One thing I can say here is that uh, theosophy is connected to Luciferianism. So if you look at the history of the Theosophical Society, you can see that the founder was Helena Blavatsky, and um, Hitler really liked her stuff and her theories. We'll talk about that more when we go into the secret society stuff. But you'll see that one of her uh, protégés was Alice Bailey. Alice Bailey uh, set up something called the Lucifer's Trust, or otherwise known as the Lucius Trust, but it was actually called the Lucifer's Trust at first. And they had a publication called Lucifer. And if, if I light this up, you'll see they have uh, contracts with the United Nations. So there gets us right back to the world government body. And it shows you how, again, um, both the... Uh, Different modes of ecumenism uh, can be compatible with uh, Luciferianism and also right the infrastructure of world government. Do you 
do you feel like you've discussed enough about Luciferism? Because you were at the other guy, and there was another pantheism that you were going to compare it to. Okay, so let's go back to the node on ecumenism, or rather, I'm sorry, the New Age esotericism. Okay, so let me go ahead and just break down Gnosticism a little bit here, which again is tied to theosophy, or they share certain uh, spiritual, mystical, uh, or philosophical tenets, and one of those is their connection to Luciferianism. In particular, uh, there are branches of Gnosticism which believe in an inversion of, again, the garden story that I told you, the Garden of Eden story. So a traditional reading of the Bible would, would see as they write, God is good, and for the devil or bad, um, but certain Gnostic traditions would say that actually the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, and that the God of the Old Testament is actually uh, what's known as in Neoplatonism, which I have a note up here, as the demiurge or the architect, and that this lesser deity was like a jealous and vindictive uh, deity that actually imprisoned Adam and Eve in the garden and that it was Lucifer or the angel of light or the light bearer who by giving Adam and Eve the uh, fruit from the tree of knowledge enabled them to free themselves from the prison of the garden and to uh, become their own gods. And you can see a lot of other connections here to secret societies, Freemasonry in particular. Uh, and, and Kabbalah, uh, but we'll talk about that when we get into that next time. Okay, so let me go back to New Age esotericism again. Last one here, astrotheology. So this one also will take the Bible and it will look at all of the various stories in the Bible as astrological metaphors. So if you've ever heard of the theory of the age of Aquarius, uh, they would say something like, okay, in the Old Testament, there is the age of the bull or Taurus, and that's represented by the golden calf that uh, when Moses comes down from the mount with the tablets and they're all worshiping the, the, the golden uh, calf idol, that's right. That's supposed to represent Taurus. And when he brings down the law, uh, that ends the age of Taurus. And then as they move into the land of the Canaanites and they go to war with uh, the Canaanites and all the various other uh, uh, tribes out there, uh, they would blow the ram's horn. And so that's supposed to symbolize the age of Aries. And then the next uh, dispensation would be the age of Pisces, which if you've ever seen right, the Jesus fish, they say that that's the symbol of uh, Jesus because it actually represents the age of Pisces. And then now we have just recently moved into the age of Aquarius. And maybe you've heard that, that uh, hippie song back in the uh, you know, 60s or the 70s. I'm not going to remember when it was made. But, you know, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, the age of Aquarius. So uh, that's that's what they're singing about. Okay, so another way to understand astrotheology is uh, maybe you've noticed before that right? the, uh, the Greek and Roman gods actually uh, have names which are identical to planets, right? So... The god Zeus uh, in Greek mythology is Jupiter in Roman mythology, but it's also a planet, right? Uh, the god um, 
Ares in Greek mythology is the god Mars in Roman mythology, but it's also a planet, right? And if you take a look at the uh, Vedic astrology, you'll see that the names of uh, certain deities in the Hindu tradition are identical with the names given to the planets in Vedic astrology. So again, in this tradition, the mythologies of the the ancient religions are seen as metaphors for understanding uh, astronomy and through those narratives that help us understand uh, the, the sky clock, uh, we're able to master nature through things like the agricultural revolution, right? Being able to anticipate the seasons uh, and then therefore being able to, uh, you know, have, I guess, one of the first would call it industrial revolution, but proto-industrial revolution, right? Moving from like a nomadic society to a uh, to an agrarian society. Now you'll also see here I've got it connected to ancient alien theory, which I won't get too deep into. But you can just take this same concept and then instead of reading the planets and the mythological gods as uh, metaphors, they would say that actually they refer to ancient communication with off-world entities, right? Ancient aliens, if you ever watch the History Channel, there's tons and tons of stuff on that. And people sometimes even use, like, the story in Genesis of the Nephilim, where the sons of God, which I guess are angels or fallen angels, they came down and breeded with humans and created these giants called the Nephilim. And people use that as one of many theories as to uh, ancient contact with uh, off-world entities, in other words, aliens. I, I can also add here that in that monotheistic apocalypticism scenario where you have this final conflict, this world war between all the world religions, that some people believe that that's the moment when not the United Nations will come in and play referee, but, but finally, right, all these UFO disclosures, uh, will there will be a final disclosure and the aliens will come down and play referee and then they'll be our new gods and they'll still um they will sit atop the new religion of scientism and technology and in 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 line with that theory people would say that uh you know that, that it was the aliens that gave us the knowledge to create technologies if not some of the technologies themselves those are visions of how of forces that are looking to institute a new world order like whether they're alien ones or some ending end time ending with a pantheistic kind of like like the force from Star Wars like it's gonna this is this these are visions different people have of how of the kind of religion religious order or spiritual order or alien order that will be established once this new world order is set up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's. I mean, was it was did I make at least that much clearer when I as I said that? I guess the only other thing that I would say about that is that okay, but you can see that the common denominator here in all of these different approaches to what could be branched under the uh, ecumenism uh, that what they do is they uh, basically blur all of the different uh, religious traditions and their their doctrines and dogmas together and they sort of uh, strip away those doctrines and dogmas to reveal what is left, which is secret knowledge of the secrets of nature, right? So having a uh, mastery or, or 
mystical knowledge of the secrets of the matter and energy of the universe, right? And and in the contemporary parlance, right, the the uh, the pinnacle of understanding the secrets of the matter and energy of the universe largely comes through science and technology. Uh, although you could add to it maybe some of these other um, mystical practicism, right? So like transcendental meditation uh, or this neo-shamanistic mysticism through, through psychedelic usage or even through some sort of mystical understanding of the sky clock in other words, astrology. And so then, of course, all of those become amenable or easily absorbed into the scientism and the technocracy of the transhumanist world government, world economic apparatus. Okay, so that's probably a pretty good place to pause for a second. Yeah, I would just say for both reasons of time and reasons of Wi-Fi, um, it's worth just saying, okay, we, de we dealt with the... Really, what, what what did you describe that other side as? Is the the infrastructure of the new world order? Um, that isn't that the world economy, world world government, world religion. And next week, we're going to talk about sort of the mechanism for its institution for using that infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, this is very eye opening. Or what is the because, all right, I won't ask John a question. I'll do the summary because what happens is for me is that I can see how this map has helped me see all the institutions are so interconnected in a way that you would almost think when I was entering this and thinking about what I had said earlier, my friend having Duncan talking to me about this, about the World New Order, I did think it was very improbable or unlikely that all of these institutions, well, he didn't explain it the way that this has been mapped out so nicely. And I did think, oh, it can't be, I just don't see it. But this is, for me, been clearly like Alison does with her maps, and she doesn't have this specific um, software or whatever um, site you're using to organize it this way. But what she org what she organizes is right are companies and people and money and the way that they are all um, have worked and partnered together. And this is so much um, more organized in a way that I clearly see how the dots are. That it, it's hard, I think, it, it, to think that there is um, any way that, or, or it's hard. It's, it's hard to think that there is a way that these, these things are happening behind the curtains, but this is, for me, uh, been just, yeah, I'm just repeating myself, just been very well organized to know that this is possibly fathomable. I would like to know, of course, in order for me to be able to feel more secure with my thoughts, to, to, to know the other half. But I'll just say that. that I, that's it for me. It's just... Well, um, <clears throat> again, yeah, this is part one. <laughs> Uh, you know, to try to understand this uh, frame of analysis. Uh, I do think it's important to hear the other part and to see how these things get executed from this frame of analysis. Um, because I do have questions about like the the, major, the the entire thing as a whole, you know, um, because as at the moment as a, you know, from my 
Marx's point of view, I, I see similarities in, 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 you know, in how these institutions are interconnected. What I see a difference in is, is to the end goal and the, the, the mechanism that connects these institutions. Because uh, again, this is not that different than how I understand Marxism, you know, how these people in these different institutions are connected. Um, and again, I, I'm just hoping to hear the rest to see how much more and uh, how, how this framework differentiates from Marxism really uh, because at the moment yeah there's you know we don't, I don't dive so much into religion and you know but I know that it plays a role and and just like you said Jake um, you know these uh, you know like that's one thing that people have a hard time understanding Marxism that is not like you know it's, it's some there are mechanisms like the profit system that that shapes society and that shape these institutions and that come back around and this, you know, the Marxism in my world, in my view, is, a, is an understanding of the whole, not just one part or the other and how they interact because, you know, they, they feed on each other. And so, so far, again, I'm not seeing that much of a difference. Um, but, and so that's why I'm interested in that second part, you know, where does the intelligence and black ops uh, come into play in this, you know, um, in the, secret societies too, because they do exist. You know, the breakfast prayer clubs are shaping politics in Latin America. You know, the, the evangelical church are, you know, but, and so again, I do think it's important we just continue this conversation. Um, I found it fascinating that I could see some connections with the Jehovah's Witnesses, but their new world order and the way that they think about it. You know. Isn't the publication something like, or it's the New World Translation? Watchtower. Like that, oh, yeah. the world, yes. The Watchtower, new world like, isn't the, Bible the New World <laughs> Translation, yes. <laughs> you want to have any summation thoughts based on what you heard from Eduardo and Kenny? No, I'm glad. I'm just glad to hear that it, that it uh, was at least somewhat uh, easy to follow or cohesive or coherent. I mean, I'm trying to jump on a bunch of nodes. A lot of stuff I could tell you, I could document with, you know, facts and stuff. Some stuff I'm just telling you what's out there, you know, and, I, and I'm perspectives that I've, that I've spent time looking at just to see how people think about stuff and not necessarily bought into it or not, but, but I've also been able to look at how those different groups either agree or disagree and then how it all kind of fits together. So um, I just, you know, next time, hopefully, right. It'll make even more sense or, or it'll, it'll, you know, more food for thought. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think what Kenny said about seeing the other side allows things to be brought together into a sort of web. And then I think like Kenny also said, which is there's a, a new set of questions that I think emerge once you see the whole, whole thing yeah you know i mean i honestly i you know you remember i i came on a largely a very very socialist uh leaning perspective and um you know after looking at a lot of this stuff in some ways you know when obama was in it kind of left a bad taste for things left of center when all my my professors and a lot of my colleagues were like thought that that was some somehow like progressive you know socialistic stuff and then i was like yeah disillusioned but in that process of kind of starting to look at more of the libertarian type stuff um you know 
and then and then seeing the, all the Trumpers basically do the same thing that people did with Obama on the other end of the spectrum. I uh, just largely spent a lot of time just trying to look at the five W's: the who, what, where, when, and uh, and you know, and then the why. But mainly the who, what, where, and when. Like, okay, like let's look at these companies. Like, let's look at who are they connected to. Oh, this World Economic Forum. Oh, the Council on Foreign Relations. And then just just dot just creating a paper trail and documenting that. And then I don't know. You can call that whatever you want. You can you can analyze it from whatever perspective you want, but there's definitely connections here that should be paid attention to. Um, I'm just Jake. I appreciate you sharing this. That's what I would say. Like what what Kenny and Eduardo said. I I think this is a good start, and um, I'm actually looking forward to hearing the other part um, and and getting into that. And I'm glad we got into the details a little bit into the weeds, even if we missed some of the nodes. And I actually, as much as that world religion part was, was like a little bit, you know, like different, I actually think that is, that is, it's good to hear and see that stuff because I come into contact with it. And like, like you said, Eduardo and I are talking about maybe doing on that episode, given all the UFO stuff, this is going to come back, you know, because there are people talking about this stuff. Like, why is UFO suddenly being talked about? Um, and there are people out there who see these stories related to visions they have of how a new world order is coming to be. So we'll, we'll look forward to part two and we'll uh, have John Kleisek once again, come up um, and come onto the show and really give us the breakdown of the other side of the new world order framework that we just looked into. And thank you so much for that map. Cause I really do think that that really is going to, and for listeners who are, able to and I, I i would encourage and invite them to look at it uh, on youtube or any of our video other platforms <clears throat> all right well that does it for this week's episode um john kleisick is the author of score world order the technocratic globalization of corporatized education by trying day books and he is a contributor to new politics the center for research on globalization op ed news the interpret report and the dissonant voice we'll link to all of your work and also to uh uh the previous episodes where we had you on as well on your youtube channel thank you john uh what's left is a weekly political podcast that's channel challenging the mainstream left left we post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes where you found this episode or on our blog at what-s-left.webno.com you can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us um I remind folks, if you like anything you've heard here, please um, share your favorite episode, rate, review, subscribe, uh, turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on Spotify, iTunes Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, um, Libri, L-B-R-Y, Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E, YouTube, and Telegram. And if you'd like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-hosts Andy Lipson and Kenny Cepeda. Thanks again, John for being with us again and see you all next time. Ciao. <clears throat> You're, you should be, Kenny, You're, I'm glad you came back because I was about to complain to Jake about YouTube. Oh, YouTube? <laughs> Wait, what, what, did you get, did you get striked again? No, I'm, so here's my, here's my complaint. I'm going to put it in the, this is not going to be in the episode, but if I'm going to put it in this episode, we can keep it as a time capsule. I don't like, okay, if I'm teaching somebody about waves or sound, 
then if they go, oh, well, tell me how, like, tell me how you get resonance. And I haven't even started on waves. Like, well, tell me about this. You know, it's like, before we ask questions about digital currency, they don't even understand the system you're describing. And now you're putting that second thing you don't describe, we don't understand on top of the, the first thing we don't understand. That irritates me. So I'm just, this is how I'm an old person. No, no, you're a dude. I, I, um, I totally, I mean, you know, if I'm going to be polished, always general to specific, right? Like general meaning like, like, like you can't talk about the specific thing, especially if you're trying to do a whole tapestry, like, yeah. especially, you know, and that goes for topic sentences. Don't, don't get me on this generation, this oh, millennial right. generation, they, they're, they're so impatient. They want to know all this modern day stuff. They want to know how their iPhones and cell phones work. Our attention span has been messed up. Our, you know. Don't worry, you're gonna get a neural link. It's gonna help. You just plug it in. <laughs> oh Jesus! Oh, I had Jesus. a student. He made a. Uh, I don't. He made it. It was a decent argument. Like I wasn't. I'm not getting a brain implant. But he was like, you know, we put all this information on these discs. Like that's a that's an extension of your memory. So why not just plug it in your head? But. I can I can explain why that's actually not entirely accurate. I think me and you talked about this with Joe Joe Rogan saying you could you could, yeah. you could uh, be you could communicate better when of course you don't always know what you're trying to say to begin with. But anyways, so let's let's uh go to work. Shall I uh, go jump in there or? Right. Yes, we should. <laughs> 